Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. We are continuing our series on the heart for the month of February, and today we're going to talk about atrial fibrillation. It's the most common heart rhythm problem that you can have, and it's usually associated with medications like blood thinners to help prevent strokes or heart attacks. But what else can be done? Is there a way to get the heart back into a regular beat? How about some of the new blood thinners? Are they really better than the old ones? Well, we are going to learn all about that. Dr. David Singh is in the studio, and he is here from Queen's Medical Center. And today we are going to be talking about atrial fibrillation. What is it? Are there surgeries to cure it? And what you can do to treat it if, for whatever reason, you need to be on medication for life? Now, If you or someone you love have had atrial fibrillation, this would be a great show to learn about what's new and exciting in the field because a lot has changed. And as you'll hear in just a few minutes, like almost every other month, there's something new coming out in the field of what we call electrophysiology. And that's really bringing some of the latest techniques right here to the islands. So remember, you can always be part of our conversation, 941-3689, toll-free 877-941-3689. 3689, but we're going to start our chat. Dr. Singh, welcome back to The Body Show. Thanks for having me. Now, we talked last time a little bit about heart failure, so we're going to switch gears a bit. We're going to talk about fibrillation. And, you know, it always surprises me. How many people do you think, in Hawaii, what are we, 1.5 million or so, some of the statistics that you know of from the cardiology world, how many people have fibrillation and just never know it? Yeah, it's a great question. What's so interesting about this disease is that... um. You know, some people can be terribly disabled by it. They have terrible symptoms, and other people don't feel it at all. So uh, almost every week I'll get someone that gets referred to me who maybe was having another procedure, colonoscopy or something else, and they did, you know, a physical exam or maybe an EKG, and they were told, hey, you have atrial fibrillation, and they never knew it. In general, most people do feel the symptoms, and those symptoms can vary from things like palpitations to fatigue to having exercise intolerance, but there is a small subset of patients who uh, have it and don't don't realize they do until it's picked up on an exam somewhere. And hopefully not when they've had a serious problem like a stroke. I mean, that's one of the concerns about fibrillation is if your heart is not functioning in a normal rhythm, could you have a blood clot that goes right to your brain? That's a huge concern. Right. And, and unfortunately, you know, every year we see patients for whom their presenting symptom of AFib is a disabling stroke or sometimes a fatal stroke. So it's really important whenever we manage AFib to focus not only on managing a patient's symptoms if they have them, but also modifying their stroke risk. It's important to understand that the heart is an electrical organ, so every time it beats, it beats as a result of an electrical signal that originates in the top right chamber of the heart, the right atrium. In AFib, that whole system goes out of whack, and the top chambers are beating very, very rapidly, sometimes four, five hundred times per minute. They're beating so fast that the blood actually isn't being flushed through the heart in an efficient manner. And wherever in the body blood isn't being flushed appropriately, uh, wherever that happens, in this case the heart, there's the propensity to form blood clots. So if a blood clot forms in someone with AFib and gets dislodged, it leaves the heart and goes to the brain, it can cause a stroke. And that's one of the leading reasons why people from AFib suffer from either morbidity or mortality. So this is not just, hey, my heart's a little irregular. This is a serious medical concern. And, you know, what I've seen in the literature for the last couple of years is that previously we were not 
getting rid of that stroke risk enough by using blood thinners appropriately. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We tend to undertreat uh, patients with AFib because we're worried about the very real dangers of blood thinners. So a blood thinner is historically what has been used to prevent strokes in atrial fibrillation. And the idea is that if you thin the blood, um, then the chance of forming a blood clot is a lot less. And historically, drugs like Coumadin, who many of your listeners will probably know was originally used as a rat poison to kill rats, this has actually been the mainstay of our therapy in uh, reducing uh, stroke risk in AFib. Uh, more recently, we'll talk about uh, a little bit later, uh, as you pointed out, some new, some of the newer blood thinners. But the idea is that when you thin the blood, you reduce the risk of stroke. On the other hand, whenever you thin the blood, you increase the risk of bleeding. And, you know, if you have an elderly patient who might fall once in a while, it's very nerve-wracking to say, hey, I'm going to put you on a blood thinner. They fall and they hit their head. You know, it could be a catastrophe. But just to give you an example, there was one study that kind of modeled how many times people would have to fall every year in order for the risk of falling to be outweighed by the benefits of Coumadin. And they'd have to fall over 150 times per year for, for Coumadin not to be favorable in terms of that risk-benefit calculation. So you're absolutely right. We've learned that we tend to undertreat, and we're more aggressive now treating patients with blood thinners because we know that it really does save lives. Now, what is the risk if somebody is in atrial fibrillation chronically? And I realize that there's a difference between chronically and episodic. Um, but if they're in it chronically, what is their risk of having a stroke in a year? Yeah, so it definitely depends on the kind of patient. So as you pointed out, you know, not all patients with AFib are created equally with respect to their stroke risk. So a 35-year-old person uh, who has no other medical problems, even though their risk of stroke is higher than someone without AFib, it's very different than someone who, let's say, is 75, who has diabetes, high blood pressure, and maybe a prior history of stroke. So as clinicians who take care of AFib patients, whenever we decide to treat a patient with AFib, we always have to ask ourselves, what is this patient's risk of stroke and what is their risk of bleeding? Um, just to give you, you know, kind of a ballpark, most patients with AFib are at least five times more likely to have a stroke than someone without AFib. And and as you start accruing risk factors, their yearly stroke risk can be in excess of 10%. So as those risk factors start adding up, the risk of stroke actually goes way, way up. So sometimes I'll see people who are given a score, a particular score. I think it's a CHAD score. What is that and how does that, if somebody who has AFib has a CHAD score of one, like your 35-year-old, maybe they may not be somebody who's going to be put on blood thinners regularly. If their score is higher, then again, that reflects their risk. So what goes into that score? And this is something doctors usually do. They'll tell the individual what the result is. But what are some of those risk factors that goes into that score? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, um, I would say for all your listeners, too, now with Google and all the wonders of the Internet, people can go online and figure out what their CHAD score is, and it'll give you a really nice breakdown of what the annual risk of stroke is. But you're right. Typically, as physicians, what we do is whenever we treat a patient with AFib, we try to quantify their annual risk of stroke. And obviously, if they're at high risk for stroke, we're going to be more aggressive. If they're at low risk for stroke, we may say, hey, 
you know, maybe blood thinners aren't the best thing for you. Uh, the CHAT score, as you pointed out, actually probably tends to undertreat patients. So now we use something called the CHAD's VAST score. But basically, you get a point for pretty much every risk factor, congestive heart failure, hypertension, if you're between 65 and 75, um, diabetes, prior history of stroke, and a few others. And we just add them up. And the nice thing about the CHADS VAS score is if your CHADS VAS score is 1, your annual stroke risk is about 1%. If it's 5, it's about 5%. And the, the conventional wisdom is that if you have a CHADS VAS score of, you know, two or higher, the risk of anticoagulation is outweighed by the benefit you're going to get with it in terms of reducing your stroke risk. And so, you know, that would be one of those arguments where you'd say, okay, this is somebody who might benefit from a blood thinner. Now, I, I qualified it and said chronic AFib because chronic AFib is slightly different than a one-time episode or acute or something that happens periodically. You feel it, you know it, it doesn't last long, and it goes away. So let's talk about the chronic folks first. With those folks who are in this irregular heart rhythm regularly, Have we? do we know exactly what causes it? Right. So I think it's, an, uh, it's, it's great that you kind of pointed out the, the chronicity of the disease. It may be helpful to take a little bit of a step back and talk about how we classify AFib. So, you know, atrial fibrillation is a chronic and progressive disorder and for which we really don't have a cure right now. Uh, but it, it's kind of divided into, we think about it in, in different stages. Early on, people have what we refer to as paroxysmal AFib, meaning they're not in it all the time. And they may go into it once a year. They may go into it once a week. It depends on the individual patient. As the disease progresses, and the natural history of the disease is that it will start off episodically, but those episodes may become longer in duration, more frequent in duration, and if nothing is done, eventually a patient will end up in what you refer to as chronic AFib. Now, the interesting thing is if you go back and look at studies and look at stroke risk, you found we found that actually the risk of having a stroke didn't depend on whether you were in it all the time or whether you were in and out of it. So a paroxysmal AFib patient... Uh, with the same risk factors as a chronic AFib patient, had similar stroke risks. So typically, we don't use chronicity as one of the defining um, characteristics in terms of making a decision about whether to start a blood thinner. Uh, But to get back to your question, though, um, we don't really know what causes it, right? Like anything in medicine, we understand associations. We know that if you have a family history of AFib, you're more likely to have it. If you have untreated hypertension, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. But that doesn't mean necessarily that those are cause and effect. We just know that those are markers that we find traveling with AFib. That makes it very challenging to prevent it, right? Because in some cases, people may just be at the mercy of their genetics. That being said, we do know there are certain things that people can do. Obviously, uh, controlling their blood pressure is really important. Um, maintaining a good, healthy diet and uh, good uh, weight uh, is, is important. Uh, treating sleep apnea is an emerging risk factor that we know can be very helpful in, in treating this disease. So there are things that can be done that we think that will ultimately affect the course of the disease and in some cases even prevent it. So like alcohol, for example, or caffeine use, things that could cause irritability of the heart. If you're predisposed to having fibrillation, you really shouldn't be drinking or minimizing it. Yeah. And minimizing any sort of stimulant use as well, presumably caffeine, but also even some of your cold medicines could 
put you at risk when you take those. They could. And, you know, I, I always tell my patients we have to be realistic. You know, uh, the the occasional patient who, you know, wants to have, well, I should say the frequent patient who wants to have an occasional glass of wine, uh, you know, and if it doesn't affect their particular AFib, yeah, I mean, I don't, don't think it's unreasonable. Don't drink the bottle. That don't probably drink the goes without yourself. saying. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes <laughs> it doesn't. Sometimes we got to put that out there and say, Wine is okay. The whole bottle, not so much. That's right. But, um, but okay. we do know that alcohol can be a very potent uh, stimulator for AFib. And for my patients that I've ablated, you know, who we've treated and managed to suppress it, um, in many cases, the last thing we'd recommend is, oh, go out and, you know, you know, drink a bunch of wine or any kind of alcohol for that matter because it could really set you back. On the other hand, you know, we think that probably moderate alcohol consumption, even moderate caffeine consumption, it may not always be the direct trigger for a patient's AFib. And so that the real key is that AFib uh, treatment really needs to be individualized. Every AFib patient that I see, I really try to structure an individualized patient approach that fits that particular patient because everyone is a little bit different. Well, and that kind of gets along with the whole one size. One size fits all means that one size doesn't fit anybody correctly, right. that we really can't go ahead and, and make a grand assumption because it's it's potentially not going to be true. So let's talk about who are the most who are the most common people that you see in the office? Do you see more of the beginning, the paroxysmal, the acute AFib? Do you see more of the chronic? And how do you manage those differently? Let's start with the paroxysmal or acute. When you see somebody, they have an episode, didn't really have it before, found on a procedure, just a routine finding, or maybe they actually came in and said, I felt my heart beating funny, and we caught it on a monitor, and by the way, it's fib. How were those folks usually treated? Right. So, you know, uh, it's it's a great question, and it's uh, what I spend most of my, my days doing in clinic uh, is trying to break down this disease in a way that patients can really understand. And, and, and the, good, the good news is, is that there have been so many advances in how to treat this disease that people really do have options. Um, the challenge is trying to explain all of those options to someone without overwhelming them because there really are a lot of different things to consider. But to answer your question, the first thing that I always tell them is that, you know, this is a, a common disease. Uh, you're not going to die from AFib. You know, people don't die from AFib. They may die from a stroke, but we can affect their risk of stroke like we talked about. And the main thing is, you know, how do we ensure that this disease has the minimum impact on your quality of life? You know, how can you go about, if it's a young person that likes to surf, like how can I make sure, how can we come up with this treatment strategy that ensures that you can do all the things you like to do? So you can go surfing, you can do, you know, whatever it is that you want to do. And in most cases, we can. Now, that may... Um, the, the range of strategies may be, well, let's just wait. You've had one episode. You may not get another episode for six years. You know, that's six years of surfing or doing whatever it is that you like to do. Um, obviously, we have to attend to their stroke risk. In many cases, a young person, let's say a 50-year-old with no risk factors, doesn't even need to go on a blood thinner. All the 50-year-olds out there that were, <laughs> that were just defined as young are oh, yeah. cheering you on. Absolutely. Cheering you yeah, on. Yeah, no. Um, and, and, and really, in terms of AFib, we, we, we really do consider 50 to be young. Uh, now, of course, 
you know, if the 50-year-old has lots of other risk factors, then there are other, uh, for stroke, there, there's other considerations. But that being said, you know, for, for your, your patient that just has paroxysmal AFib and doesn't get it very frequently, sometimes conservative management is acceptable. On the other hand, I have a lot of young patients who come in and say, man, I feel terrible when I go into AFib, and it happens once a week, and I want to be able to do, you know, my exercises, and, and, and I just feel terrible. And for those patients, it really, uh, you know, we tend to be a little more aggressive. And so we'll do things, uh, for example, like an ablation procedure where I'll go into the heart, uh, you know, without cutting. I'm not a surgeon, but I'll get into the heart by using the veins and arteries in the, in the body and actually try to target the tissue that causes AFib and, and eradicate it. And for many patients, the ablation strategy can be very effective at completely eliminating the symptoms uh, and sometimes even getting rid of the AFib for, for many, many years. So again, you know, it really does depend on the individual patient. The paroxysmal patients tend to respond the best to uh, the therapies that we have, and that's because they're very early on in their disease course, whereas the patients who have been in AFib for, you know, 15 years, that can be very challenging. And sometimes in those cases, we'll say, you know what, it's better just to leave you in AFib, try to control your symptoms, and make sure your risk of stroke is uh, attended to. And so that really gives us the whole spectrum. But what I want to talk about, and we're going to come back in just a minute or two, is let's talk about two of those things you mentioned. The first thing you mentioned is ablation, and we'll talk about what that procedure is, what it means, and how is that individualized to different people. Because we might, you know, in that particular scenario, you talk about finding the exact cardiac cells, those cells in that heart that are the troublemakers, and getting rid of the troublemakers, and how easy is that process, and what are some of the new innovations that have taken place. We'll also talk about some of those blood thinners. I mean, you can't turn on the television without seeing some celebrity of some type who's advocating a different blood thinner that doesn't require the monitoring, because you talked about warfarin or Coumadin. You have to get monitoring done frequently, get it checked out. And one of the first indications for using some of the newer blood thinners has been in atrial fibrillation because it really does limit how much of this constant blood testing and monitoring and dietary restrictions you have to do. So when we come back, we're going to talk about that as well. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. David Singh. We are talking all about atrial fibrillation. And what is it? What does it mean? And what are some of the options for those people with this diagnosis on how to treat it and still live a happy, productive life? If you've ever had AFib or if you've had an ablation, We'd like to hear from you about how that went for you. You can give us a holler at 941-3689. Toll free from our neighbor neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. There's a new group of professionals joining the gig economy. The newer age of stylists, like, you know, kind of just want to work for themselves and, like, kind of work on a freelance basis. I'm Kyle Rizdal. Can an app give the beauty industry an economic model makeover? We'll tell you next time on Marketplace. This evening at 6, following The Body Show. If there were women all through life waiting and women busy and not waiting... I knew which I had to be. I'm Hope Davis. Join me this week on Selected Shorts for a celebration of Alice Monroe from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m. following Travel with Rick Steves. 
Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. David Singh, and we're talking today about atrial fibrillation. Dr. Singh works at a Queen's Hospital, and he's been seeing a lot of folks recently. And there's a lot of new techniques that are going on in the world of electrophysiology. And some of the great new things that are coming right here to the islands are the latest, greatest, up-to-date techniques on how to treat these various conditions. Now, if you've ever had an ablation, we'd like to hear from you just to see how that procedure went for you. We're going to talk a little bit more about it, what it means, but if you've had it, you know who you are. And we'd like to hear what your experience was. You can give us a holler at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. Now, let's talk a little bit about ablation because we mentioned that just a few moments ago. And a lot of people don't really understand what it means. And ablation has something to do with trying to target. You know, it's like it's almost like a whodunit mystery. You know, I'm one of four siblings who left their plate on the table or, you know, who is the one who made a mess in the kitchen and everybody's going to deny it. And then obviously it's going to be one, maybe two people that are involved. And sometimes, you know, you can't always figure out who that is the first time around. So tell us a little bit about what ablation is and if some, why some people might have to have it done more than once. Right. So, uh, you know, ablation for AFib has really transformed the field of electrophysiology. And in medical terms, it's it's a fairly new procedure. You know, uh, some very smart people figured out that for whatever reason, the pulmonary veins in human beings and just to sort of remind the listeners, the, the heart has four chambers, two upper chambers called atria, two bottom chambers called ventricles. The pulmonary veins dra- drain blood from the lugs, oxygenated blood, back to the left side of the heart. For whatever reason, uh, these folks in France figured out that the trigger for AFib, the key that gets everything started, that turns the engine on, tends to come from these veins. And there are a lot of reasons why we think that might be. That was a very important discovery in terms of understanding the mechanisms and the pathophysiology of AFib. Because what they figured out is, okay, if the key that turns the engine on is the pulmonary veins, and we target the pulmonary veins and make them electrically inert so that they can't transmit electricity anymore, then you've essentially taken the key away from them. And patients who undergo a procedure called an ablation procedure are essentially undergoing a procedure where we go into the left atrium, we target the pulmonary veins, and we do what we refer to as isolation, meaning that we electrically isolate the veins from the surrounding atria. So what actually can happen is the the veins can still try to trigger things, but they're incapable of allowing that impulse to escape to the rest of the heart. It's like a buffer zone. It's a buffer. It's exactly what it is. And I have some amazing uh, cases where I actually have a patient who their, their veins are in AFib but their heart is actually in a normal rhythm. And that shows wow. that we've actually been able to create that buffer. So uh, the, the ablation, again, it's not, it's not a surgical procedure, but it's an invasive procedure. It's not a cure. And I also you know, have a long discussion with my patients about what it is and what it's not. But it can be very effective at curbing symptoms from AFib, reducing the AFib burden. And it essentially involves, like I said, going through one of the veins, going to the left atrium, and creating a buffer zone by applying uh, heat, uh, or in some cases, uh, freezing, you know, there are different techniques. But you're essentially inactivating the tissue surrounding the veins. 
And in those particular areas, that's often effective enough to stop the heart from going into fibrillation. And if somebody has that procedure done, might they have to have it done again? Yeah. So there are a couple of reasons why that might be. You know, the the national numbers are, you know, they say about 20 percent of patients will need a second procedure. And in our experience, it's a little bit lower than that. But nonetheless, there are two reasons why the procedure might not work the first time. The first is that we're actually, you know, in a controlled setting, we're actually killing small numbers of cells to create that buffer zone that you talked about. And the technology, while effective, you're, you got to remember we're doing this on a beating heart. Right. So to be able to get good lesions, like we refer to our burns as lesions, you have to make sure that you're really actually fully, you know, committing that tissue to basically not being around electrically anymore. And in some cases, we think we've gotten it, but it actually comes back to life because the heart's a really resilient organ. So someone may go undergo the procedure. They do, may do well for a couple of weeks, and then they go back into AFib, and then we'll bring them back to the lab, and we'll find that those zones that we had previously ablated actually come back to life. So that's one reason why the ablation may not work. The second reason why it might not work is that in, not, in, in some patients, the veins aren't the whole story. So, you know, you've targeted the veins. You've done a great job. The veins look silent. We're all really happy about it. And you find, wow, they still have AFib. And th- so in those cases, then we'll go to do a little bit more extensive ablation, targeting some other regions in the heart other than the veins to try and prevent their AFib burden from, you know, rearing its head. Now, we talk sometimes about having this particular procedure done, and it's not as invasive as other types of procedures. It involves kind of similar to like an angiogram that some people think about, but there used to be a much more invasive procedure called the maze procedure, and that was actually more surgical. Right. How is what ablation targets different than that? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's interesting that the, the surgical maze was an open heart procedure initially that essentially involved cutting up the atrium and sewing it back together in, in crude terms. But what they were doing essentially was creating uh, these lines of block, essentially creating buffer zones, buffer zones uh, to prevent these impulses from occurring. And the initial attempts at ablation in the heart were actually attempts to um, sort of recreate what the maze was doing. The discovery about the pulmonary veins was a really key step in all of this because they realized that they didn't need to ablate everything. If you target the veins, which is a much more limited ablation set, a much more limited buffer zone, uh, most of the times you actually can improve the patient's condition. And so essentially what we've learned from the surgeons is that in paroxysmal patients, you know, these are patients who, you know, don't have huge, big dilated hearts, oftentimes the veins are enough. That being said, there's still a role for the maze, and for patients with really severe refractory AFib, we'll still sometimes uh, refer patients for maze procedures, and the maze has come a long way as well. It can be done minimally invasively now. Um, you know, it doesn't require quite so many cutting, you know, lines and so forth. Um, but the the two operations are really complementary. What we do in the EP lab with our ablations, what the surgeons do, um, we often can work together to try and get the best outcome for the patient. So when we're dealing with this kind of situation, ablation may not be a cure. It might give someone a temporary relief from fibrillation. When they have these procedures, do they need to continue to take medications to thin their blood, to control their heart rate? What winds up happening if they've had an ablation? Could it be so successful that they don't need any of their pills anymore? It can. It can. Um, But I don't generally 
promise that to patients. Sure. I mean, there's no, you know, in medicine, you really can't promise anything (laughs) because every body, every literal body is different. But in that situation, you've actually seen people get off of pills or medications if the procedure worked and they were the ideal candidate. That's right. And, and, you know, and and my thinking on this has changed because our technology has gotten better and our ablation results have also gotten better. But in general, what I tell patients who are considering ablation is the main reason to do it is to help their symptoms. If I have an asymptomatic patient with AFib, I can't make them feel better because they don't feel... They don't feel bad. Yeah. Thank God. So, right, exactly. So, you know, it, it, those can be challenging situations. But for the patient who really has bad symptoms, most of the time ablation can make them feel better. That being said, if they're a really high-risk stroke patient and I ablate them and their AFib burden goes way down, but they're still having some AFib, well, they may feel a lot better, which is great, but their stroke risk is still there. So we really have to be careful about saying, hey, look, you know, you're going to get off your blood thinners, you're going to get off all these medications, because sometimes they'll need to stay on some of these medications. And sometimes ablation plus medication is the only way we can get to keep these people and in, in patients in normal rhythm. So again, it gets back to that individualizing patient care. The range of uh, outcomes for ablation can be from, you know, no more AFib, no more meds to something in between. Now, you just mentioned the uh, there's a slight difference between rhythm control and rate control. So sometimes when people have these really fast heart rates because the fibrillation starts to kind of get out of control, they can wind up having problems and their heart just goes like wild, really fast. And a lot of times they'll feel that. Um, other times it's just that they feel it because they're in the irregular rate because their heart is not pumping blood in the same way. They just notice the difference. Years ago, there was a debate on rate control versus rhythm control. Where has that debate settled out now? Yeah, that's a a thorny question and one that's still being debated. Uh, But uh, as you pointed out, this goes back to some very early studies that were done. Uh, One one trial in particular, there were were a few, but one trial in particular was called the AFFIRM trial, which uh, basically took patients with AFib and randomized them to either a rate control arm or a rhythm control arm. Now, keep in mind, so the rate control arm, those are patients in whom we're saying, look, we're going to leave you in AFib, but we know that most people who feel badly in AFib, a lot of the times they feel badly because their heart rate is out of control. So we can use drugs and other strategies to make sure that even though they're in AFib, we'll keep their heart under control and hopefully make them feel better. The rhythm control arm is saying, look, we're going to use our tools to try and keep you out of AFib. And at the time of those trials, ablation wasn't hadn't been invented for AFib yet. So there was no ablation. There was just drugs. For any of your listeners who take antiarrhythmic drugs, they can be effective, but they can also be really toxic with respect to side effects. And what they found in this AFFIRM trial and a couple of the other trials is that there was no difference in mortality between the people that took antiarrhythmic drugs, i.e. the drugs that were designed to keep them in a normal rhythm, and the patients who we just rate controlled. That can be interpreted in several ways. One thing that was very clear is that the antiarrhythmic drugs weren't that good. If you look at the antiarrhythmic arm of that study in particular, only about 50% of the patients were even out of AFib at one year. So you were kind of comparing patients with AFib to other patients with AFib. So it didn't really surprise many people that there weren't big differences. So what has changed now is the fact that we have better tools. Um, We don't really have better drugs, but ablation has changed everything as far as that's concerned. And so what we, and there, and there are some more recent studies that, that suggest that ablation, uh, may improve outcomes long-term in patients with AFib. 
And so those outcomes would be, would be measured as mortality, which is unfortunately death, but it is a measure we have to look at. But then also strokes, other cardiac issues, side effects of medication, kind of putting it all out there saying what is what is optimal because we think being in a regular rhythm would be optimal. And for some folks, that's absolutely true. For other folks, it might be being in a rate, being in an okay rate would be effective. I think it gets back down to what you brought up at the top of the hour, which was the individualized approach, that it really depends on that particular person's heart. And we've talked a little bit about who's a good candidate for ablation. But if you have a structural cause for your fibrillation, if your heart's dilated, if you have some sort of reason why your heart's in that funny rhythm, you may not be a candidate for some of these other procedures. That's exactly right. And, you know, I turn down many, many patients for ablation, you know, every week. And the reason's because if you're going to undergo an ablation procedure, even though it's fairly routine, you know, I do it several times a week and there are other people here on the island that do it, you know, frequently as well, it's still an invasive procedure. So to suggest to a patient that we recommend doing a procedure like this that does have some risk, albeit small, you really want to give them a good chance of having a good outcome. And if it doesn't seem like they're a great candidate for ablation, like it's probably not going to work, or the chances of it working are very slim, then there's no point in undergoing their procedure. Better to just rate control people, make sure that their stroke risk is being attended by, uh, either by putting them on a blood thinner or some of the newer technologies that we have to uh, occlude the left atrial appendage and so forth. So, you know, it, it really does depend on each patient whether they're a good candidate for one technology or another. And some of those reasons why they would not be a good candidate for ablation would be dilated heart, would be other secondary risk factors, would be the potential complications of a somewhat invasive procedure. That's right. So the the single most important determinant when I see a patient with AFib uh, in terms of their candidacy for ablation is the chronicity of their disease. If they've been in AFib for 15 years and their left atrium is, you know, what happens with AFib is the heart chambers start to enlarge. And if they have, uh, you know, a left atrium that, that, that's the size of a soccer ball, um, Nothing you do is going to really change yeah, that. Yeah, I can't really help. And so that's that's the most important. Age is another important one. You know, once patients start hitting the age of 80, I, I start to get nervous about doing an invasive procedure because the heart muscle at that age is thinner, more likely to have complications. Um, so, you know, you really just have to kind of approach every patient as an individual and figure out whether the ablation strategy makes sense for them. Now, you mentioned that left atrial appendage. So when we think about the heart, the four chambers, the top right, the top left, the bottom right, the bottom left, there's this little extra thing, this appendage, this extra area where it can cause some troubles or be an area where you might have an increased clot risk. You mentioned there's a surgical way to treat that. Yeah, so we're really excited about this. Um, we've been doing this for uh, almost a year now. Um, well, depending on the technology, we've been doing left atrial appendage occlusion for, for over a year. But there's a new device that's available called the Watchman device. And, and this is a, a really interesting evolution in our treatment of AFib. As you pointed out, the left atrium has this little pouch called the appendage, and we th kind of think of it as like the appendix of the heart. Um, it does have some some function in terms of uh, hormones and that it secretes and so forth, but functionally, removing the appendage doesn't seem to have a big impact on the functionality of the heart. We know that 90% of the time, if a blood clot's going to form in the heart, it tends to form in the left atrial appendage. And the idea 
of removing the appendages in a new one, surgeons have actually been doing this for over 50 years. When they would go into the operating room, they might have a patient with atrial fibrillation, and let's say they're fixing one of the valves. They would clip the appendage because they knew that if they got rid of the appendage, and the appendage is the source of clots for many patients who with AFib, then you could theoretically impact their stroke risk. So some pretty uh, uh, innovative people came up with a technique that allows us to close off the appendage without having to cut people open. It's kind of like closing off the attic. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so w- basically what we do, it's you know uh, reasonably straightforward in most patients, is you know we go up through one of the veins in the leg, and we actually put a, a plug. It's like a vascular plug that uh, can fit into the appendage, and it essentially seals off the appendage from the rest of the heart. The theory being that if you get rid of that structure, blood clots aren't going to form, the risk of stroke goes down. When they compared that device, and this device is called the Watchman device, to Coumadin in studies, it seemed to be almost as good or just as good, really, as Coumadin at reducing stroke risk. So now, recently, the FDA just approved this um, for patients who have atrial fibrillation, who are at high risk for stroke, but who may not be good candidates for blood thinners in the long term. So this opens up a whole new dimension in terms of being able to treat people for whom blood thinners might not be ideal. We still have something that we can use to impact their stroke risk, which is really exciting. Well, sure. And the people for whom blood thinners may not be ideal, you mentioned the fall risk, but there could also be people who have kidney problems, liver problems. They have history of bleeding out and having serious problems with stomach bleeding or some other source of bleeding, or if they have another condition that makes them more likely to bleed. Absolutely. Blood thinners wouldn't be so good in those folks, but what else could we do rather than, hey, let's cross our fingers and hope. So this is a really great alternative that sounds like it's brand new. With relatively so. And, you know, with this device, it really can have a huge impact on folks. We think so. Uh, you know, we think, like 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 you said, I mean, pr- prior to this, we basically was, were stuck Cross with our crossing fingers, our, yeah. our fingers and hoping. And so now that we have another tool, it, it's just something else that we can offer to patients. Again, you have to select the right patient. It has to be the right candidate. But we've been doing this uh, for, for quite some time now, uh, and have had some really great results. So we're pretty excited about it. Well, and it's, again, it's another option. You know, it's funny because I think about medical school when I was there. It was, here's how you treat atrial fibrillation. You give them these medications. They're on it for life. That's just the way it goes. And you just hope they don't have problems. But there's so much more to the story. I don't know of any 30-year-old that would want to be on blood thinners because that impacts, can you go and do impact sports? Can you go, you know, what if you hike up a hill and you're trying to go on a hike? Just to go for fun and you get a cut or you you fall down, your risk is so much greater having problems. So now we're giving lots of people options that they never had before. Absolutely. I mean, I have a lot of young patients, uh, you know, who have AFib and who like to surf. Not not just young patients, you know, middle aged and older patients too. Uh, I'm but we know fifties young, so 50's we're young, sticking you and to I'm that. I'm one of uh, twelve people in the state that doesn't surf apparently. But you <laughs> know, I, try telling someone that surfs here to wear a helmet. It's not, you know, it it doesn't quite really? fit. Really? I've never seen a helmet out there <laughs> I, in the ocean. Exactly. So, you know, the fact that we have some options um, is, is really important. And, again, it's about restoring people's lifestyle so that this disease, even though we don't have a cure for it, we can give them a lifestyle and help them get to a place where they can basically have a really good quality of life and allow them to do the things that they want to do. And if surfing's part of it, let's hope surf is up. Not too high, but... 
up enough they can enjoy it. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. David Singh, and we're talking today about atrial fibrillation and what does that mean, what are some of the ways that it can be treated. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the latest changes in blood thinners because that's also another new development that has really helped folks, particularly those who love their green vegetables and salads that were might have been told no more of that when they were taking warfarin or Coumadin, how they can now enjoy their foods and not have to be tied to a lab every four weeks and all that kind of stuff. Lots of great improvements. We'll be talking about that and more when we come back. Remember, you can always join us if you or a loved one have has ever had atrial fibrillation or you have any questions about it. Now is your chance to ask an expert, and you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. On the next Humankind. I realized I had to think positively. I had to act positively. I didn't have the luxury of any kind of self-indulgent, self-pity, anger. After losing his fortune in the Bernie Madoff swindle, a best-selling author reappraises his view of wealth. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. This evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. February 20th, jazz and Middle East master musician Surin Baronian joins local favorite Partners in Time in HPR's Atherton Studio. Join us for this evening spanning the traditions of Bulgaria, Greece, and Turkey to contemporary improvisations and original. Call for your tickets to Partners in Time, 955-8821 during business hours or go to hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership Wealth Management. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii and Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. David Singh from Queens Medical Center and the Punchbowl Campus. And we are talking today about atrial fibrillation. It's a funny, unusual heartbeat. Some people call it a jazzy beat. When your heart just beats irregular, and it's irregular in its irregularity, irregularly irregular. And in this particular condition can actually put people at risk for things like problems with strokes and problems with just feeling really just lack of energy and a lot of different concerns. And there are some new techniques out there, some surgical procedures, some medical uh, medications we're going to talk about that really can help to completely transform the field of the treatment of, of atrial fibrillation, which is often done by cardiologists and cardiac specialists called electrophysiologists. Now, before the break, we were talking a little bit about a procedure called ablation and also left atrial appendage closure with a device called the Watchman. And these are some great new things that have come about in the last few years or so that have really transformed how we treat this condition. Now, before we talk about some of the new blood thinners, I want to talk with Mike from Manoa. Mike, welcome to The Body Show. Aloha. This is Dr. Michael Clicks uh, here in Manoa Valley. Uh, I was just recently, well, a year ago, diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. But, you know, I've had no symptoms whatsoever. No, uh, you know, uh, shortness of breath, no dizziness, no collapsing. And I still body surf and swim and hike, and I'm a beekeeper, so I all around heavy beehives all over the place and you know I, I don't like warfarin warfarin is what i use to kill rats and uh, i do have minor abrasions tiny ones but they end up being there forever and they drip blood and they itch 
And uh, I don't know what else side effects that warfarin has, Coumadin has, but I don't like it. Now, before the break, I just tuned in. And you were just finishing up the conversation about some miraculous new drug or, or process that you had, and I didn't catch the name of it. What was that that you were talking about? Well, I think we were talking a little bit about ablation, which is the surgical way. I guess it's not semi-surgical, right, Dr. Singh? Semi-surgical way to go ahead and treat atrial fibrillation. It's not as invasive as an open-heart surgery. And then you were also talking about the Watchman device. That's right. Okay, so it wasn't a drug. This was a uh, surgical intervention or a, a, a device, right? It is, but hang on there, Mike, because we're about to discuss some of the newer alternatives to Coumadin or Warfarin as blood thinners, because that may be something that you would want to consider. There are some new medicines out there that don't require some of the same monitoring that warfarin does, but they also have some unique properties that may put you at a lower risk of having serious bleeding. So well, hang on to that ablation. I've been cardioverted twice, and uh, I didn't find that very pleasant either. But Nobody does. You know, I mean, you're basically killing part of the heart tissue to make it reset itself somehow. Isn't that correct? Dr. Singh? Well, uh, hopefully not. With cardioversion, it's kind of like hitting the reset button on a computer. Yeah, um, I know. I did that. I'm talking about ablation. Yeah. Oh, right. So ablation, yes, that's true. We're, we're, we're selectively killing uh, small amounts of tissue in order to prevent the atrial fibrillation. But, Why you know, the amount of ablating that we do doesn't really affect the functionality of the heart. And you have to remember, when you're an AFib, your atria aren't beating at all anyway, right? So by restoring sinus rhythm, even though we've created a scar, um, we've actually improved things if it works. And what's the success rate of that as compared to uh, cardioversion? Uh, well, they're, they're really in two very, very different camps. So cardioversion is not really thought of as a long-term strategy to eliminate or curb AFib. It's kind of... Ablation some... is? Yes. Yeah. So you and do it once and it's done? Not necessarily. Uh, you know, sometimes it does take a couple times. And again, I don't use the word cure when I talk about ablation. Yeah. But but in general, you know, 75 to 80% of patients with paroxysmal AFib who undergo ablation are, are better off than where they okay. started. I'm not sure I'm having any paroxysms, but I don't have any symptoms at all. That's what concerns me. And I don't want to get deeper into this just because that's the diagnostic uh, anagram you follow to get diagnosis and treatment. So I don't know what to do. Yeah, so I, I think the best thing like to, to do is really have a good, thoughtful discussion with your cardiologist if you, if you have one about how to manage it. Well, and, you know, Mike, one of the things that, uh, that certainly we get worried about is, again, it's not so much the people with symptoms that are troublesome because usually if they have symptoms, they come in, they tell you, hey, I've had my fibrillation again. It's the folks who don't have symptoms that could still be in and out of fibrillation that may not want to take blood thinners for a variety of reasons, and you mentioned some of those, but that are kind of at the greatest risk of having strokes because if you know you're in fibrillation, you can talk with your doctor, work out a plan, figure out what to do, where to go, go to the emergency room, go to their office, get seen, figure out if you need treatment and kind of stop that process or know where you are in that spectrum of fibrillation. But it's the silent fibrillation. You know, in fact, one of our cardiologists at, at Straub maybe about a year or so ago gave us a lecture on the etiology of what we call cryptogenic stroke. So these are people who have strokes who have no idea why and they get checked out 
And at that time, they're actually in a normal, regular heart rhythm, and nobody knows why they had this stroke, but they did. So they go looking for clots. They look in the legs. They look in, you know, for, for the lung area. They look in the heart to see if there's a little hole in the heart where clots can sneak through. And they often don't find anything. So they get this fairly uh, frustrating diagnosis of cryptogenic stroke. But what they found is the majority of those folks, if you were to monitor their heart for an extended period of time and take a look at their heart over the course of not just a Holter, which is 24 hours, but if you looked at it over the course of, you know, several weeks, if not up to 30 days, the majority of those cryptogenic strokes occurred in patients who had episodic AFib that they absolutely didn't feel or know about. And that's the big concern. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, Dr. Singh, you mentioned blood thinners to reduce the stroke risk. Because once you've had the stroke, that's it. We can't reverse whatever damage is done, whether it be damage because you have memory issues, damage because you can't move part of your body, damage because you now have issues related to lack of sensation of part of your body, or your swallowing is impaired. Once you have the stroke, you have the stroke. We can only say, let's not have another one. We can't fix the one you had. That's right. And fortunately, uh, you know, the brain is is a pretty miraculous uh organism, uh, organ, I should say. Not not as cool as the heart, but it's still pretty cool. Um, but, you know, it's it, what's amazing is uh, for patients that do have strokes, not always, but oftentimes the brain can rewire itself. And so patients that may have um, some significant deficits initially may actually regain some functionality. But for a lot of other patients, they don't. And so the best thing to do, as always in, in most things medicine, is prevention. So if we know that someone has AFib, doing everything we can do to prevent their risk of stroke. And then certainly if they have a stroke, helping them to prevent a, a second prevent event another is one. obviously sure. really important. All right. We've got a caller on the line. We have Eloy from Maui. Welcome to The Body Show. Eloy? Uh, yes, good, good afternoon, doctors. Good afternoon. How are you doing today? Um, really good. How about yourself? Doing well. It's a holiday. I'm hoping that the weather is nice over there on the Valley Isle. It's pretty darn nice on Oahu, and Dr. Singh has taken up his time to help us talk about some heart issues today. What can we do for you? Okay, so this is this is my question. I know that he's talking about, um, I guess, uh, ablating in terms, you know, in terms of ablating the electrical malfunction in the heart, but it's... It, is, is the ablation going to happen at the AV nose, or, or just this is just for cases where, where I guess the the electrical impulse is coming from a different part of the heart that's causing the atrial fibrillation to, to happen. That's a really good question. Where do you do the ablation, and is the AV node involved? Because that's actually a location where we have to be really careful, because that's what helps to make the bottom part of the heart actually. Uh, provide the beats and and pump the blood to the areas of the body where you need it to be. So we talked about this a little bit earlier, Dr. Singh. You mentioned those pulmonary veins, those culprits. Um, this type of ablation is a little different than what we're talking about AV node. Right. So for, for your listeners, the AV node is a really important structure in the heart electrically. And what it does is it, it transmits the signals from the atria, the top chambers of the heart, to the bottom chambers. So it, without an AV node, the bottom chambers of the heart would not beat. Now, just a little bit of history. So the first ablation ever done in human beings was actually, I was lucky enough to train with, with the person that did this, and there were a few other people here in Hawaii who did the same. But a guy named uh, Melvin Scheinman at UCSF basically ablated the AV node in a patient with atrial fibrillation 
because their rate couldn't be controlled. So remember, sometimes we'll just say we want to keep your heart rate under control and we'll use drugs. Well, sometimes drugs aren't enough. And so what he did is he actually ablated the AV node, put a pacemaker in, and then you didn't have to worry about the heart going faster than it should. We don't do this very much anymore, and mostly because we're usually able to control the rate with drugs. In severe cases, if we can't, we'll ablate the AV node. But ablation for AFib is really trying to keep patients in a normal rhythm. And so we don't target the AV node at all. We stay as far away as we can, actually. And like I said earlier, we'll really target the pulmonary veins as a strategy to keep them out of AFib. So the AV node, we like to keep that nice and happy and comfortable because that kind of directs the lower parts of the heart. And if you ablate the AV node, you need a pacemaker. That's correct. Without... A pacemaker, if you ablate the AV node, uh, either patient's heart won't beat, which is, there's another Generally name for that. Generally not good. There yeah. is another name for that, and that's <laughs> or, not being alive. Right, okay. or it'll beat very, very slowly. So we use, we use that as a last resort. Rarely we do it, but um, for the most part, we try and use strategies that will keep people out of AFib. And AV nodal ablation is indifferent to whether the patient's in AFib or not. All we're saying with AV nodal ablation is, hey, we're going to make sure your heart rate doesn't ever go too fast. So it really provides a different benefit than would the ablation that we're talking about for the upper chambers. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of those new blood thinners. Every time I turn on the TV, there's there's some celebrity saying Eliquis is wonderful or, you know, Pradaxa is the best thing next to sliced bread. And so there's a lot of different alternative blood thinners that have come out because the old blood thinner warfarin, although it still does a very good job, it is coming from rat poison. That is true. And you have to do a lot of monitoring. You have to check your levels periodically. You can't eat a lot of green leafy vegetables. You have to be really mindful of your diet because any little changes could affect the levels. So they've developed these new blood thinners. Who can use those? And are they really that much better? Yeah. So, um, you know, before getting into the the newer blood thinners, just a little bit of a plug for Coumadin, because although it does hail from rat poison, it is an extremely effective drug in AFib. And up until recently, it was the only drug that we used in AFib that was ever shown to make people live longer. And why is that? Because basically it reduces stroke in AFib patients very, very effectively. And patients with AFib who die typically die from consequences of stroke. The problem, as you mentioned with Coumadin, is that it has a very, what we refer to as a very narrow therapeutic index. If it's too much in the system, people bleed. If it's too little, it's not effective. It has a lot of interactions with other drugs and, as you pointed out, with food. So if someone doesn't eat salad one day and then eats a lot of salad the next day, their levels can be all over the place. So it's very hard for patients to be on it typically, uh, very hard for physicians and healthcare providers to take care of patients with Coumadin because you're constantly having to adjust their dose and check their blood levels. So it can be quite cumbersome. For years, people were looking for an alternative to Coumadin, an oral drug that didn't require monitoring, that thinned the blood, and that was safe. So that's a lot of, you know, criteria that had to be met. And what's really remarkable is in the last, you know, five or so years, we went from having no alternatives to actually having four alternatives to um, Coumadin. So uh, the first of those was a drug called Pradaxa, um, which came out a little, I think, a little over five years ago. Um, there's a drug that was called that's called rivaroxaban or Zoralto that also came out. There's a drug called Apixaban uh, that came out. And most recently, there's a drug called Adoxaban. All of these drugs are taken orally. Some are taken once a day. Some are taken twice a day. None of them actually require any monitoring. Uh, all of them are at least as effective 
as Coumadin and in some cases more effective than Coumadin at reducing your risk of stroke. And and most importantly, uh, when you look at bleeding and in particular fatal bleeding and intracranial bleeding, meaning bleeding into the brain, which is the kind of bleeding we're the most concerned about, all of them tend to be better than Coumadin. So it would seem that you have a drug that is at least, all of these drugs are at least as effective as Coumadin and safe, if not safe, if not safer in some cases. So, um, you know, we finally, you know, have real options for patients who need to be on a blood thinner but don't need to worry about having to take Coumadin anymore. Now, one of the arguments for Coumadin, which, again, it's still used in certain indications, heart valves and other serious medical reasons. One of the arguments for it was because if you ever had an episode of bleeding, you could reverse it pretty quickly. Giving vitamin K, you could figure out a way to reverse it. And up until recently, we haven't had a way to reverse some of these other newer blood thinners. But that's about to change. Yeah, so that has changed. And I, and I would say, you know, whenever I talk to my patients about putting them on blood thinners, I, I never treat that decision lightly because, there, like I said, there's no such thing as a blood thinner that doesn't cause bleeding. I mean, there's always an increased risk of bleeding. But when you're thinking about a blood thinner, you want to think about not only how effective it's going to be, but how safe it is. So the fact of the matter is, if you look at the data, if you take patients that were on Coumadin versus patients that are on one of these newer agents, their risk of having a really catastrophic bleed uh, across the board was lower in the newer agent arm. So already you've conferred some kind of advantage in that situation, which is that if you're taking the newer one, you're less likely to have a really bad bleed. Now, that being said, it's true. We didn't really have, in all cases, a really good reversal agent for these agents. Um, there is officially now FDA-approved a reversal agent for Pradaxa, and there will hopefully within the next year be a reversal agent for the other three as well. So we really are entering a new era in terms of our ability to give these drugs that are highly effective at reducing stroke and also appear to be safer. And the big concern you mentioned was bleeding in the brain because that could lead to some catastrophic effects. But even for folks who don't have major problems, it's generally not good for you to have something else pressing on your brain. It could cause you to have other issues, memory loss, increased fall risk, a whole bunch of stuff. And then you got to get the blood out and that's a whole nother element. So trying to avoid that is obviously of utmost importance because that's one of the consequences of blood thinners. And so the newer ones actually have been approved specifically for non-valvular, meaning not related to your heart valve, atrial fibrillation. And in some cases, some of them have actually received approval as treatment for blood clots, DVT blood clots, pulmonary emboli, clots that go to the lung. So we're seeing some expanded indications for these medications because we're seeing that they are so safe and they are extremely effective. Where do you see the field of fibrillation going in the next five years? I mean, so much has changed in the last five years. We've got about another minute or so. Do you see any, project any changes? What's going to happen next? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I feel very lucky to be working in this field right now because we're in the midst of uh, such massive uh, improvement in our ability to understand AFib and treat it. And I'm quite certain that, you know, five years from now, we'll look back on what we're doing now and say, wow, you know, I can't believe we were doing that, even though it's pretty effective. Um, I think the real frontier is going to be not so much the paroxysmal patients, because we do a pretty good job with them, uh, but for the patients who have more chronic AFib. And when you consider that, you know, 20% of patients over the age of 80 have AFib, you're talking about millions of people. That's know, a lot around the world who have this disease. So that's a lot of people, and many of those patients are in the chronic phases, and we can't really do much to get 
get them out of it. So my hope and, and prediction will be that, you know, in the next five to 10 years, we'll get much, much better at treating those more advanced cases of AFib. I brought you this bracelet that obviously your listeners can't see, but, you know, we have these bracelets. We'll take that a picture. We we'll put them on the Facebook Yeah, put page. it on the right. Facebook. But it basically shows, um, you know, uh, uh, an atrial fibrillation rhythm um, trans- transitioning into a normal rhythm. And that's the kind of thing that we're striving to do, you know, in our clinic every day is, is figuring out a way to maybe not eliminate the disease completely, but beat it back to the point where people can live uh, healthy and productive lives. And not have to worry about any potential risk for the future and live as long as everyone else does. Absolutely. All right. So a lot of great new things that are happening in the world of cardiology. And you'll never be bored in electrophysiology, I'll tell you that much. Uh, Definitely not. All right. I want to thank you so much for coming in on your holiday and sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. We'll have to do it again. All right. Dr. David Singh practices at Queens Punchbowl Campus and can be reached through the Queen's operator. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on Facebook. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich, and Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week when we talk more about the heart on The Body Show.